Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 and continue our lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege we have of being able to gather together as your people. Lord, to hear your word and to worship and to fellowship and to encourage and hopefully, Lord, uh, challenge one another. Pray that you will help us today to set aside all the distractions, Lord. I know even this morning I'm distracted in my mind by various issues that are not bad issues, but they're issues that distract my heart from where it needs to be. And Lord, I know I'm not alone. Many others in the room want to be focused on the right thing, but life has a way of chipping at our minds and our hearts and getting us distracted. So I pray, Lord, we could put those things aside. Pray that we could focus on you and your glory. And I pray that through the teaching of the word here in Sunday school and then in the main service with Pastor Steve and then coming back for the evening service tonight, that through the teaching of your word, you would show us where we need to change. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we should be encouraged and help us, Lord, to keep striving to be like Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the middle of a section of Scripture that's a continuation of our teaching of 1 Peter. And as I introduced it last week and began teaching through our outline, it's really a summary of a particular section of teaching that is focused on how we live our lives. The section that this concludes runs from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 12, and we're in the midst of that concluding section now. And I think if we understand the book as a whole, that really this is just practical teaching to tell us how to live out excellent lives. We're supposed to be holy as God is holy. I uh, reminded us last week from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, the call, sort of the theme of this entire book. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Really, everything in the book of 1 Peter is driving us towards this goal. And the section of practical application that we're in, that began at chapter 2, verse 11, continuing through chapter 3, verse 12, is just how that looks. What does it look like to be holy in the context of life in a fallen world? Peter talks about holiness in relation to the government. What does that look like? We submit to the government. What does that look like in the workplace? We submit in the workplace even if our boss is a horrific boss, unreasonable. Peter holds up Jesus as the example because he, I believe, knows that what he's calling us to do is hard. The government in his day was corrupt. In his day, employment quite often was a true master-slave relationship, which isn't easy. And so he was putting forth Jesus as the ultimate example who no matter how sinfully he was treated didn't respond in sin, he responded in holiness. And then as I indicated last week and it's sort of the basis for the outline in dealing with holiness in chapter 2 verse 12 
Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. In other words, even in the eyes of a fallen world, all those who watch us, who aren't believers, should see something different. Our behavior should be excellent. And that's what we're dealing with. Excellence towards the government, holiness towards the government, in the workplace, and then as we spent many weeks covering, even in the marriage relationship, the beginning of chapter 3. The role of wives, the role of husbands. It's all about keeping our behavior excellent, which is really another way of saying it's about us being holy as God is holy. And we began to cover last week verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. I'm going to read it again. You can follow along. Because Peter is really bringing all this to a close. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. My outline of this section was very simple. And again, it was based on that word choice of keeping our behavior excellent. It's just three keys to living a life of godly excellence. And last week we covered the first one of those. It was this, honor those the Lord brings into your life. Honor those the Lord brings into your life. And we saw that in verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. As I explained last week, this is just a brief review. As I explained last week, that idea of to sum up is really summing up that section that I told you about. Starting at chapter 2, verse 11, continuing to where we are. He's given specific application in the area of believers in government, believers in the workplace, believers in their marital relationships. But here he's going beyond, and he's making it clear, these are universal applications now to every circumstance of life. And as I alluded to last week, the primary focus of verse 8 is our relationships with each other. Really, our relationships amongst the body of Christ, amongst believers within the church. That's who God's brought into your life, and we're supposed to respond in a certain way. And as I went through each of these five characteristics, and different translations use different English words, but it's the exact same meaning. As I went through, I mentioned these aren't five things that you can break apart and say, well, I got three out of five, that's pretty good. Or I got four out of five. Four out of five is a passing grade in anybody's class. I'm okay. No, if you're four out of five, that means you're failing. Because the standard is holiness. The standard is God. And that means every one of these characteristics should be a part of our lives as we're dealing with other believers. All of you be. To sum up, all of you be. It's a command for all of us, every one of us in the church. Every Christian, not just husbands and wives, not just those who have jobs, not just those who are dealing with the government at a particular point in time. It's to everyone. And these attitudes must reflect us. Harmonious, 
unity of mind, unity of spirit, living at peace with one another, being on the same page with one another, sympathetic, having compassion, being able to feel and be moved by the circumstances and emotions experienced by others, brotherly in the context of brotherly love, having that genuine affection and love for others that we would naturally have for members of our own family, kind-hearted, which is just another way of saying being compassionate, caring about others, feeling towards them and doing for them. And the final characteristic which makes the others possible is humble in spirit, recognizing where we stand, that we're not the pinnacle of human existence. Other people's interests matter as much as ours. In fact, biblically, we're supposed to concern ourselves more with others' interests than we are about ourselves. It's humility, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. If we're doing all of those things, we're going to be honoring those in the body of Christ. We're going to be honoring those that the Lord has brought into our life in the church. So that's a quick and very brief review of last week. And now we move on to the second key to living a life of godly excellence. The second key to living a life of godly excellence. Not only do we honor those that the Lord brings into your life, but you should bless those who try to hurt you. Bless those who try to hurt you. Peter's very clear to sum up all of you. Be, in a positive sense, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble of spirit. Verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. As I thought about this as I was preparing and I'd been studying, it occurred to me if there's anything that distinguishes true godliness, being in Christ, if there's anything that distinguishes that from our natural sinful nature into which we're born and into which we struggle against, it's how we respond when people attack us. Perhaps nothing tells us what's going on in our heart better than when we're under attack. And Peter hits this issue head on with some very, very difficult teaching. And we're going to see, as I reference this, it's not isolated teaching. This isn't something where you could say, well, maybe we can explain away what Peter said because he's the only one who said it. No, this is found throughout Scripture. But the fact that it's found throughout Scripture doesn't make it any easier for us to live out. And it's actually teaching that I think all of us have heard before, but I want to emphasize and have us dwell on it a little bit. To make sure that it's percolating in our hearts. So while we had a positive duty in verse 8. All of you be these things. All of you exhibit these godly characteristics. Now we've got a negative. Don't do this. Not returning evil for evil. Or insult for insult. It's hard to get more personal than this type of instruction. And this type of instruction is contrary to everything that we naturally feel, and not only everything that we naturally feel, but everything that we're naturally taught. I can't speak for every culture. I was born and raised here. 
this is the culture that I know. And I understand that everything Peter's saying in that little phrase, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, runs contrary to everything that you're taught your entire life. What do I mean by that? It's simple enough to picture. One of the most natural things in the world is to defend yourself. You watch little kids play. One kid pushes another kid. What's the instant reaction? I'm going to push you back. You take my toy. Don't think I'm not taking your toy. And when kids learn how to talk, they, one of the first things they learn how to do is to speak back. You said something against me. I say something about you. I always marvel that anybody could think human beings are inherently good. It's like, didn't you have kids? <laughs> didn't you watch those little angels turn without any careful instruction by you in doing it? Yeah, I was thinking, literally thinking back through my elementary days. Just thinking it through. And it's almost comical because that's the first thing you learn as a little kid. Somebody insults you, you've got to insult them back. And if you're little, like me, you learn if you can insult back and make people laugh, you can avoid getting beat up as much. Why is there that whole sticks and stones may break my bones? Because kids insult each other and it starts early. It's that reflection of a sin nature. But it's not just that some insult, it's that everybody else insults back. And again, that carries over as kids get bigger. It becomes more physical and quite often. Young men will often fight physically. Why? Because he insulted me or he pushed me. Young women are not immune. They do the same thing. Insults, you insult me, I insult you. You call me something bad, I'm going to call you something bad. Nowadays, they've added in the ability to do all of this on social media to amplify it, to make sure that if you insult me in person, I can insult you to the world. But it's the exact same thing. And then it follows into the work world. As you're growing into young adulthood and starting your life and you're going through your work career, you're told, don't let anybody push you around. They'll run you over. You'll get left behind. Somebody pushes, you've got to push back. If not literally, at least figuratively, a big chunk of my career as a lawyer was dealing with the after-facts of people retaliating against each other. Because then I'd get called in because somebody was going to lose a job or get suspended or get a reprimand. That was what I did. Because human nature doesn't change from the time you're in preschool till the time you're an adult. But beyond just what we see, that's the theme of half the movies we watch. I love old action movies, Clint Eastwood type movies, the westerns and the police dramas. Why? Because nobody pushes him around. Not for long. You can hear the music in your head right now. He's the only guy that can put on a poncho and look cool. Am I right? I mean, how many of us, are, we're not wearing ponchos here. But he flips that thing over and... And we cheer on the inside. He got him. He got him. He got him back. And don't forget sports. College football started this weekend in earnest. Pro football is about to start. 
What do we see? Testosterone run amok. The play is over. Somebody shoves somebody in the chest. Somebody, what are they going to do? Shove them back. We're in baseball season. What happens? My pitcher hits your batter. What do you do? You turn around you hit them back. This is so ingrained in our society and from a young age that when we become believers, quite often we excuse behavior that's condemned by Peter. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult ever. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you understand how hard it is. Your natural instinct is still to respond like you were a kid or a teenager or an unbelieving young adult. Because it's personal. You've offended me. How dare you? You've done evil against me? You're insulting me? Peter is saying... Retaliation, responding in kind, is never, in my notes, it's capital, N-E-V-E-R, it's never okay. Ever. And as I said before, this teaching permeates God's word, it's all over. Now we have to start, when we think about this, just looking in First Peter, look at what Jesus' example was. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, the first part of the verse. Peter's holding Jesus up as the example for all of this. And he says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. If any human being was ever going to have an excuse, if it was ever justifiable, it would have been Jesus. And what was his example? He did not respond in kind. And Jesus was just living out what he had taught. I'll try and repeat these verse references so you can write them down. I don't think you have time to turn to them. But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 41, Jesus was correcting the predominant mindset of the day. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we could pause. That was a perfectly appropriate Old Testament governmental Standard that God applied to the nation of Israel as a theocracy. But it had become an excuse for personal vengeance. It wasn't an issue of the government, it was just personal relations. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That's bizarre teaching from a human standpoint. At the very least, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, duck when he swings for the left. Proverbs 20, 22 not just exclusively a New Testament thing. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. In other words, don't take your own vengeance. You don't go and take care of everything yourself. Paul made a statement in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, the very first part of it, that is as comprehensive as Peter's statement. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Paul reiterated that teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the beginning of verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. 
Here's the challenge for this. I don't believe any of you would argue with me at this point. I think the scriptures are clear, and so I think we would all say, okay, yeah, that's, that's it. The challenge is there's no exceptions. We accept it to a certain extent, knowing that we can explain it away in our circumstances because God didn't know I was going to be dealing with this kind of evil. That can't be the case. Now, I want to be clear about something, and this is very important. If someone behaves criminally towards you, it's not returning evil for evil to call the police. That is what you should do. That's not a matter of personal vengeance. That's why God has placed the civil authorities over us. In First Peter, the government is described as those sent by him as governors. The governors are appointed by God for the punishment of evildoers. Romans 13.4, talking about the government. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it, being the government, does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So do not hear me say that if someone acts criminally towards you, you can't be protected. Call the police immediately. We'll help you call the police. That's not returning evil for evil. That's using the God-given means of protection. Likewise, in an appropriate circumstance, it's not returning evil for evil to follow the practice of Matthew 18 and go to a brother when you have something against him. It's not a matter of being evil. It's not a matter of insulting. It's a matter of confronting in a loving way, if you can control your heart or brother, about sin. At times, the elders are called to get involved in a situation like that, availing yourselves of those legitimate Authority structures is not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. But what it does mean is you're never justified in exacting revenge on your own because of what somebody did to you. I mean, Peter was dealing with a real circumstance. He wasn't trying to explain away evil. He wasn't trying to say, well, well, it's not that bad. Don't respond with evil because it's not that bad. These were believers who were suffering. Many of them were enduring hardships for the faith. They were being subjected to evil. But the fact remains, the scriptures remove from us the ability to ever retaliate such that it's not sin. If you retaliate by action or by scheming, or planning, or by your own insults in reply to insults, you're sinning. Before I was a pastor, I saw this just in living in the church. I've mentioned before, I think Lakeside is the fourth church where Debbie and I have been members, and we've always gotten involved and been active. A church in San Diego, a church in Fresno, a church in the L.A. area. And in that context, even before I was a pastor, there were many circumstances where we saw disputes or conflicts between believers. Sometimes in marital relationships where husband and wives were having conflicts. Sometimes in conflicts between friends and church.
And I've heard it so many times that now if it happens to me in counseling, I cringe. Someone's confronted because they sinned in their response to something. And their immediate response was that you're pointing the finger at the wrong person. Look what they did to me. Well, sure, I did that, but look what they did. Sure, I I acted sinfully against them, but look what they did to me. And I can talk till I'm blue in the face and I can't convince somebody that that behavior is sinful. Why? Because I'm justified. I didn't start it. Sure, I said some bad things to my wife, but did you see what she did? Give me a break. Do you know what I have to live with every day? Why are you coming down on me? Get on to them. If that ever is your thinking, you're sinning. Period. Period. We have to go back to the cross. We have to go back to Jesus. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was suffering, he uttered no threats. That's why we can be told, don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult. It's dangerous to ever say that one thing is the most, I I see something like this the most, but I can't recall, as I think through this, and I'm always focusing on what I'm teaching at that moment, but I've seen more sin justified by finger pointing than anything else. I thought about yesterday, it's natural, it's what happened in the garden. The very first sin, well, it was that woman. And the woman, well, it was that serpent. But we can't do that in the face of evil. The response to you being mistreated is not for you to sin. Your response is to be Christ's response. Again, if you've got a serious issue of abuse or something like that, call the police, but don't retaliate yourself. If we ever get in the mindset that says, I'm not really doing anything wrong because I'm just retaliating and they deserve it, we're sinning, we have to stop, brothers and sisters. Not only do we have to stop, we have to not encourage other people in that very same thing. I've seen many believers tell other believers what you did was okay, even though Scripture says it's sin. Why? Because I would have done the same thing if I was in your shoes. And I hate to think that I would be sinning. No, we've always got to come back to Scripture. If retaliation or giving back what you've received is any part of your vocabulary, repent. Be it in your home, with your kids, your spouse, your work. Even driving a car and retaliating because somebody cut you off. Well, that yelling was okay. Now... If I didn't have anything else to say, we could all go home and feel bad because how hard that is. That's hard to live out. If any of you have mastered that, I praise the Lord. And I also assume you're going to be in heaven this afternoon because <laughs> your life's over. You've mastered it all. There's nothing left for you. I'm not predicting anyone's death. That was a humorous attempt to uh, <laughs> add levity in the midst of some very difficult teaching. But here's the challenge. Everything I've said up to this point, 
is hard to do. Now we go into the impossible. Because Peter doesn't just say, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. We go from that's really hard to that sounds crazy. The word used is translated in English, blessing, has the idea of to speak well of or to praise someone. Why do I say this sounds crazy? Because instead of responding in kind and retaliating, we're supposed to actually do something positive towards those wicked people. Someone insults you, you should be trying to find a way to say something positive towards them. Try and find a way to do good towards them. Rather than calling down God's lightning to strike them, you're trying to find out a way to be a blessing to them. That just is contrary to everything we know. And yet, this isn't an outlier in Scripture. Romans twelve fourteen says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's the exact same teaching. Matthew 5, 43 and 45. Again, Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's the example. God doesn't make all bad things happen to evil people all the time. They get some of the common blessings of life. You be a blessing. Even to those that are considered your enemies. Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another with evil for evil. I read that before, the second part of the verse. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So not only are we prohibited from counterpunching, not only are we prohibited from defending ourselves by insulting back or returning evil for evil. But as believers, we're called to affirmatively, even in those circumstances where we're being treated horribly and sinfully, we're supposed to be looking for opportunities to do good, to praise, to bless. Apart from walking by the Spirit of God, I can assure you this is impossible. If you're not redeemed, you're not doing this. But for believers, we have to be daily under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit, not walking in the flesh, but walking by the Spirit. Or else we're going to lose this battle every time. I mean, if I try really, really hard, I might restrain myself from hurting someone that hurts me. But to come up on my own with the desire to help them, to bless them, to make their life better. We would all say that cannot be. I can't do good to them after what they just did to me. Well, yes, you can. And you have to. That's where a biblical worldview 
has to come into play in our daily relations. What do we ultimately want for everyone on earth, even those who are hurting us? It's hard to think biblically when we're hurting personally. There's something about our own pain that focuses our energies inward. If you've ever broken a bone, you know the first thing you're thinking about is, ow, it hurts, that's all I can think about. Well, that happens when somebody's hurting us evilly, either because they're treating us badly or they're insulting us. All we think about is ourselves, but we have to step back and think bigger. Unless we are thinking like wicked people, we want unbelievers to come to faith in Jesus Christ, don't we? Don't we want the gospel proclaimed? Don't we want to see the lost repent and believe? Don't we want the lost to have what we have, the free gift of salvation? Don't we want to be able to think like Jesus and say, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. The mind of God... Reflected by 2 Peter 3.9 is this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We need to have that even evangelistic mindset with everyone we encounter, including the people who are hurting us. But I can tell you again, that's not natural. All of us here can, most, I think all of us here can remember 9-11. You can probably remember where you were when the towers were hit. I can remember I was getting ready for seminary when the second plane hit the tower. And when it crystallized in our minds what had occurred against our country, I think every one of us wanted the same thing, revenge. I praise the Lord for you if you had the wisdom biblically to say, Lord, help us not just seek revenge, but we wanted everybody dead. I wanted Bin Laden dead. And where I realized in the midst of things that I had a problem in my own heart was that I didn't want those people saved. I wanted them to suffer. That's a dangerous thing to suddenly decide that I know better than God. To this day, there is so much animosity towards people from Islam because we see videos and we hear of these things and we correctly condemn the false teaching, but we happily condemn the people trapped in the lies. We shouldn't be praying bad things against those who hurt us. Rather, we should be praying that they would find salvation that they would be blessed by being redeemed. Peter gives sort of an explanation. In fact, the remainder of the verses and what we're going to cover next week are sort of the big picture of why we have this counter-nature reaction. But Peter finishes verse 9 with this. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 
not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, forgiving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Part of our calling as believers is to bless others even when they don't deserve it. Even when they have hurt us. This isn't saying that we earn God's favor by doing this. This isn't working our way to heaven. This is an indication that those who have received God's undeserved mercy should be willing to quickly offer forgiveness and mercy to others. We're going to inherit a blessing from the Lord for all eternity because Jesus Christ redeemed us. We should act in a way that shares that blessing with others even if they don't deserve it because we never deserved it either. And we should be doing this, if you go back to that original phrase, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles in part because they're watching us. So that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, our reaction in the face of mistreatment by unbelievers could be the means by which some of them ultimately come to faith. Because they're watching. It requires all of us to remember that we don't get what we deserve. We have an innate sense of justice hardwired into us. We want justice for everyone else, quite often overlooking that if we got justice, we'd be in hell. Because that's what we deserve. But God showed us mercy. We, in turn, can show mercy to others. God blessed us in spite of us. We can bless others. Jesus told a lengthy parable. It's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. And it's very familiar to us, to most of us, I believe. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 25. And it started with a simple statement. Peter said, Lord, how often do I forgive my brother? He, he was being magnanimous seven times. Everybody else be impressed. I would be willing to do it seven times. <laughs> That's exactly what the attitude was. And Jesus said, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That doesn't mean 490. It's just exponential. And then he told a story of a person who owed a debt that was impossible to pay. And at that time, if somebody didn't have the means to pay, they would be sold and put in prison. Could be them and their families. And this person owed an insurmountable debt. From a dollar perspective beyond anything anybody could ever hope to obtain. And that person who owed an insurmountable debt begged for mercy and the king gave him mercy. He was going to be sold with his wife and his children, and he pleaded for mercy. And it says, the, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Didn't reduce it, just slates clean. 
Obviously, the picture is that's what God has done for us. But what was interesting was the slave who had all that forgiven, as we know from the story and the parable, turned around and somebody owed him a little bit. We might view it along the lines of a personal insult, not an insurmountable debt, but he owed him some money. And rather than showing compassion, what did that person do? I get what I deserve. And he went bananas, and he grabbed him, and he's choking him. He's exacting revenge because you owe me. And he threw the guy in prison, even though that guy was begging just like he had been begging before. And ultimately, the person who had had an insurmountable debt forgiven was ultimately condemned, thrown into prison because of his lack of compassion towards a fellow slave. And Jesus at verse 35 says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now again, there's a different overall application. It's illustrating a point. If we've been forgiven what we've been forgiven, and we have if we know Christ, we never get to hold grudges. We never get to be offended forever. We never get to retaliate and pay back evil for evil or insult for insult in any circumstance. We have to bless those who are trying to hurt us. Because that's why we were called. We're supposed to be a blessing. It's not easy. It's contrary to our nature which is why we've been given a new nature in Christ. To make the impossible possible. Join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy you've shown to us. Lord, there are times when the application of Scripture can seem challenging or elusive. Today isn't one of those times. Lord, your word is clear to us. We are never to repay evil for evil or insult for insult. And Lord, I know I'm quick to want to do that. I don't doubt my brothers and sisters have the same struggle. And Lord, unfortunately, even within the church, at times we'll be encouraged to do exactly that. To pay back evil for evil or insult for insult and we'll call it good because they deserved it. Lord, forgive us. Help us never live that way. Help us never counsel others to live that way. Help us never to minimize the sin of retaliation. Lord, help us insulate ourselves from the effects of sin in our culture that transmits a message contrary to your word in this area repeatedly in every area of life. Lord, help us live excellently amongst the Gentiles. And Lord, at any given moment, if we believe that we've reached the breaking point, help us remember the example of Christ. He didn't retaliate, but he entrusted himself to you. Help us learn to do that as well. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.